0: want to turn to Genesis 3, that's where we'll be, we're carrying on this morning. And um, as you're turning there, can I just say how good it's been to be with you the last sort of six months or so. I've loved it. I've loved getting to know many of you, not all of you. I'm looking forward to completing the set and getting to know the rest of you, but I've loved getting to know you. Thank you for the ways you've welcomed me and the ways you've blessed me and been kind to me and welcomed me and befriended me. In so many ways I felt just that you've been a tangible evidence of God's grace in my life, so thank you. Yeah, and I've loved this period of getting to know you all, um, but I, wa- I thought I might start with a little thing you might not know about me, which is even though I did geography at college, I love history. Mainly stories of war and victory. Of course, not all wars, we kind of forget the late 1700s. I don't know why, we just kind of skip over that bit. For some reason, we just kind of skip, you know, but I'm thinking more about sort of World War I, World War II. You know, honestly, actually, I didn't know what Independence Day was about until I moved to Louisville in 2014. I was like, independence from who? Because the, honestly, they didn't teach us that. They just don't teach us it. So, 1776? Nothing happened that year. Anyway, anyway, I have a particular interest in all things World War II. Some of my favorite movies are World War II films. The Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill. There's Dunkirk about the miraculous kind of salvation of people who, because the French were, had no backbone, whatever. They, they, let, they let, left us hanging and we had to send a bunch of boats to go and get our troops. I I saw on the plane last week, as I was coming back from England, Hacksaw Ridge, which is an epic film. Who's seen that film? I would recommend it. It's a beautiful film. I was ugly crying on the plane. It was a beautiful film. Band of Brothers, that's another favorite. I mean, it's not a film, but it's a series. Those rousing stories of World War II, I loved them. But I guess one of the other reasons why I loved... World War II is because my family had skin in the game. My granddad, who's going to come up on the screen here. This is my granddad, who I loved. He is my mum's dad, Frank Pauzzi. And uh, he fought in World War II in the Royal Navy. And I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a second, but I'm going to start with some show and tell. So, hope you like the bag, Poundland. Um, This is something my granddad gave me about 25 years ago, and it's going on for 100 years old, I guess, 90-ish. So, this is the blanket that he slept under every night he served in World War II. This is his blanket. You can just about see on one bit of it some of the numbers of his, like, there's some white numbers at the bottom more or less. But I, I've been sewing on patches for places I've been and from when I was in the scouts, you know, boy scouts. So. but that. That is my granddad's World War II standard-issue Royal Navy blanket that he slept under every night he served in World War II. My granddad, he was involved in facilitating the D-Day landings at at the the beach of Aramash. Aramash. He was in logistics, and his boat actually guided in Canadian troops on the D-Day landings. He actually then was in a ship that got torpedoed and he was left to, out to sea and miraculously gets saved and praise the Lord, he was alive to tell the stories. But another thing that fascinates me about World War II is the leadership of Winston Churchill. The Darkest Hours, one of my favorite films. It's full of great, quotable speeches. He was, the, he was a man who could rouse the nation with his words. One of his most famous wartime speeches goes like this. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or maybe fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, though that be the case, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender, he said. You know what your, one of your great presidents said? Well, actually, maybe just, I don't know if you think he's great or not, but JFK said, JFK said he mobilized, Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into war. He roused the nation. And while we're on it, I just wanted to say thanks for joining us in the fight. I know it took till Pearl Harbor to get personal. And uh, like I said, the, the French weren't going to be much use, so thanks for, thanks for the help. But enough of that, let's go back on point. Why, why all this reference about war? My granddad, Winston Churchill, well, we are in a war, are we not? We have a worse enemy than Hitler, the Prince of Darkness. The Bible talks about the age we're in right now is the present evil age. We see evil all around. We see there's wars and rumors of wars. We see the conflicts in Ukraine. We see conflicts in Israel. We see conflicts all over the place. But not only wars, there's suffering of all kinds. There's disease. There's death. And there's temptation. One of the things I've realized as I've grown up, and I'm still growing up, but we don't have to live long in this world before we experience the brokenness of it. There are times in our lives when God seems very absent and evil seems very present. seems. I don't know where you're at this morning. Do you feel battered by the waves of suffering or temptation? Do you feel battered? I've become more aware recently that even as I'm thinking about leading worship, that not many of us dance on into church. Many of us come in with a limp because we're struggling or we're fighting or we're hurt. Just a couple of weeks ago, I heard about one of my good friend's son, Alfie. He was 17. I've just been home for the funeral. He died in a tragic skateboarding accident. And it's tragic. I went to the funeral In England, it's more tragic because his mum had just been diagnosed with breast cancer about three weeks before, and there's just a lot going on and hitting and barraging and battering that family, and they're broken. This world is not as it should be. 17-year-old Alfie shouldn't die. But this world, as I've said, we're in this present evil age. There is evil, there is death, there is disease, there is temptation, there's all kinds stuff going on and we we need to figure out where we are we 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 are in this world and it's not as it should be because we're in the in-between there's some theologians talk about it as the now and the not yet we live between the first coming of christ which we celebrate this time of year and we live anticipating his second coming and in between there's some victory there's some blessing But there's a heck of a load of hardship too because we're in this middle ground. The present evil age, even though we've got the spirit, even though we kind of will be triumphant in the end, we're in the middle and we struggle and we fight on. This world is hurting and it's groaning, is it not? That's what Paul says. There's a war still raging on. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil that's who we're fighting so do you feel that this morning do you feel battle weary do you feel worn out do you feel defeated do you feel like you're hurting and you're opposed and you're afflicted because we are in a battle aren't we and we're not always victorious We struggle and we suffer. We experience setbacks. It seems like evil forces win the day sometimes, or a lot of the time. Satan seems like he's having a field day a lot of the time. It seems like he's got the upper hand a lot of the time. And I know it's a great song, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but I know that it's not for many people. It's a time of struggle and loss and to remember who's gone or there's loneliness and there's loss in this time of year. Where do we go for hope? Where do we go for solid ground? Where do we go to get a handle on where we're at in this war, or in this age? Well, there's encouragement to be found in the scriptures. We're thinking today in Genesis 3, hopefully you're there. But let's remember, before we dive into Genesis 3, the context of where we're at, the first ones to receive the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were Israel whilst they were in the midst of Egypt. When they were on the cusp of entering the promised land where they were going to fight Canaan, the Canaanites. These people, they're beaten and they're subjugated. The words we're about to read here, they would bring some promise. They would bring promise. We're going to see be promise of liberation and victory. They contain something of messianic hope. We see throughout the Old Testament there's a messianic hope, but we see the first glimpse of it in this text we're about to get to. And in fact, these verses we're about to read, yeah, they contain what's called like the first gospel. These verses show us to look forward to the day when release and salvation and relief and victory will come in one who is promised. We'll see these verses, they contain themes of victory. And these themes would be illuminating for Israel because they're a nation of slaves, they're toiling and they're perishing at the hands of the Egyptians. But in hearing these words, these oracles of God we're about to see in Genesis 3, they could understand why the evil existed and they could find hope for relief. And so can we. Looking at these verses will help us understand why evil exists and where we will find hope for victory. These verses in Genesis 3 help orient us in the battle that we're in. Because this world is confusing sometimes, is it not? These verses are going to help us. They're going to give us godly perspective on the fight that we're in. Genesis 3 verses 14 and 15 is where we're going to be. It's the curse of the serpent. And in just these two short verses, there's a lot that sets up so many things for the, the rest of redemption history. And we are about to read it in just a second, but one more thing before we do. Curses usually they usually scare us, don't they? They're like incantations. They're scary. But this curse shouldn't scare us. It should steal us. It should rouse us for the battle. Better there are better words than Winston Churchill's. We have the word of the Lord Almighty to rouse us and make us rise up and be ready to fight. So, Genesis 3, I'm going to read from verse 1 onwards. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to so make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they, were, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And these are our verses for today. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you And her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to pray before we get any further. Lord, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the power of your word. And we just pray now that, Lord, the meditation of our hearts. And the thoughts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, Lord. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're in chapter three. We've seen paradise gained. We've seen paradise lost. We've seen the serpent's tactics, right? Jake's sermon a couple of weeks ago showed us that. The sermon here isn't based on his tactics. It's based more on his end. It's based on his doom. Did you notice in the verses there There's a reference to enmity. Verse 15, I will put enmity, says the Lord, between you. That means we have an enemy. That means we have a war. That's why we're talking about war this morning. That's why we've been talking so much about all this war stuff. The first rule of war, I don't know if you all know it, what's the first rule of war? To know your enemy. That's what Sun Tzu said. If you know the enemy... And know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. He's a very old Chinese guy who wrote the book, The Art of War. Anyway, we're going to dive into words that are going to teach us more the art of war, God's war, the war we're in. And these words are going to help us to get real. This is going to come up, I think. This is our kind of sentence for today. To get real about the battle we're in by recognizing Satan who's our ruthless enemy, but remembering Christ, our conquering king. And I know you all like C's around here because we're called CCC, are we not? Christ covenant church. And we've just rolled out four C's for our CGs, community groups. Well, I've got five C's that are going to help us just kind of help us work through this text. The cursor, the cursed, the content, the conflict, and the conqueror. I hope you're proud, Mark. I know you love alliteration. So. so these verses, they're going to help us get ready for the battle. We're going to re- be realistic about Satan, but we're going to be reassured about our Savior. Satan is doomed. Christ is the one who dominates. Satan, our enemy, is cursed by the Lord Almighty, but Christ is the conqueror. That's what we're going to see. So our five Cs. We're going to start with the first one, the cursor. I don't mean your little mouse cursor. I mean the cursor, who's giving the curse? It's God. These verses says, and the Lord God said. And let's not rush over those four words. The Lord God said. He's the one pronouncing this judgment, God himself. The words in Hebrew are Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, faithful God. Elohim, the supreme one, the one who is mighty, the one who is the one true God, the Lord. Who is the Lord God? Who is the Lord God as we've seen in Genesis? Well, we've seen that he's the supreme and the almighty source of all, have we not? We've seen the one who, with his words, says, let there be light, and there is light. His words are effective. They are powerful. They get stuff done. They return, not empty, but they are effective words. Psalm 29 reminds us that when the Lord speaks, the Lord thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. David says, the voice of the Lord flashes. When he speaks with flames of fire, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord has power. And here God himself is speaking. They're not words of a mere man. Usually when we think of curses, I'm not sure whether y'all were allowed to watch it or read it, but Harry Potter hexes and curses and stuff, well, they had to practice with their wands and try, they kind of had to keep trying before they got it right. And, you know, What J.K. Rowling said about it, she said, curses are the worst kind of dark magic, she said. But this isn't dark magic here. This is divine judgment. It's divine judgment from the Almighty God. These are the powerful and effective words of God. They are divine declaration of doom on our enemy. And only the sovereign God of all could say them. He's the only one who could impose this decree. And what God says here is in direct result of the disobedience we've just seen in the beginning of chapter 3. In these early chapters of Genesis, just to remember what we've seen, we've seen God is the gracious and abundant creator and benefactor. But now we see him as judge. A just judge, a gracious judge, but the judge, metering out just and appropriate judgments. And we'll see in the pronouncement of judgment here, there is also not just judgment, but a promise. A promise of future relief. For in three, chapter 3, verse 15, we read of the promised seed, the promised offspring of the woman, who will crush
1: and bruise
0: our great adversary and bring victory.
1: In this judgment that the Lord utters,
0: there's no back and forth like we just saw at the beginning of chapter 3, when Satan's like, did God really say? And Eve has to try and answer him. And he's like, surely you will not die. There's a back and forth. Well, here, in this pronouncement of curse on the serpent, he's silenced. There's no conversation. The Lord addresses the serpent, not, as we saw last week, with a gracious question, drawing them out, like Jordan showed us. He doesn't give them him a chance to explain or... It's just a sentence, a divine sentence, a divine decree. But we'll see, it's both punishment and promise. So those four words, the Lord God said to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you. So on to our second seat. The curse, the cursed, who is the cursed one? Remember that rule of war? Know your enemy. Let's remember who's being addressed here. Who is the one being cursed? It's, It's the serpent. But Revelation 12, 9 helps us see that it's not some abstract reptile. This is Satan. Revelation 12 says the ancient serpent, he is the one called the devil. He is the one who is Satan. He is the deceiver of the whole world. John in his revelation leaves us with no doubt. The serpent is Satan. The serpent is Satan. The serpent here, remember, he's real. It's not made up. This isn't some myth. Satan and this serpent is real. And at this point, there's probably lots of questions, not least, where the heck did he come from? And Derek Kidner, as I was reading for this, just said something helpfully and briefly. He said, this chapter speaks not of evil invading, as though it had its own existence, but of creatures rebelling. Evil does not have its own existence. What we see here is creatures, the serpent and the man and the woman, creatures created by the almighty God rebelling. Evil doesn't just kind of turn up. Evil is not a sort of rival God to God. There's loads more I want to say here. I don't want to give, I don't really want to give our enemy too much air time, but I want to just give three simple points about what he's like. Number one, he is rebellious. The scriptures teach that he is a fallen angel who rebelled. The New Testament shows us that, that Satan is one of the angels who the Lord cast down from their position of authority. He is rebellious and he's crafty. Chapter three, verse one says he's more subtle and more crafty than all the beasts the Lord God had made. He is cunning. And he's also arrogant. He thinks he can question and contradict God. He proudly twists God's words and contradicts God
1: himself by saying, did God really say? He's sly. He's evil.
0: The scriptures talk about him as the deceiver and the accuser the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the God of this world, the one whom Jesus calls the murderer from the beginning. This is who we're talking about here. This is who the one being cursed. Number one, he's rebellious, but number two, he, he is created. There is no doubt. Chapter three, verse one says, now the serpent is more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So let's remember that. If he's created, He's not ultimate, and he's not the creator, he's not God. He is not like God, he is not all-powerful, he is not all-present, he is not all-knowing. He is not omnipotent or omnipresent, he is not omni-anything. Satan is not all-powerful, but he is active in this world. And in John, Satan is described as the ruler of this world. But we know, don't we, God, he's really the most high ruler of all, right? God is the true sovereign. Satan is not. And we'll see that Satan is no match for our sovereign. So he's rebellious, he's created. And three, we're going to see he is doomed. We'll get onto to this more later in the sermon, but we've already read of this serpent crushing offspring and seed. There is a promised savior, a conquering king, who is coming later in the redemption story. His end is certain, and as the hymn says, his doom is sure. But there'll be more on that later. We're going to keep moving. So the third C we've got to is the content of the curse. I want us just to pause for a second to see some of the content and some of the significance of the curse. And first of all, I want us to clock who's listening. I think we can safely assume that it's said in the hearing of Adam and Eve. I mean, how else would it have been passed down verbally and then written down when Moses writes the Pentateuch? And what an encouragement it must have been For Adam and Eve, who felt their failure, who felt their shame of the fall that just happened. What an encouragement it would have been to hear these words. So let's clock that. It's said in in the hearing of Adam and Eve. And just clock where we're at in chapter 3. It's part of the way through. We've seen how the deceiver
1: has led them astray. but the deceiver
0: is the one he addresses first. There's a kind of quite structured way this is written, and it makes us focus on this middle bit where the curse is on the serpent first. You might expect, Adam and Eve, they failed. You might expect that they might get judgment first. They don't. The deceiver does. After their deception by the devil, they've been graciously... Addressed by God, who's drawn them out. Even in these verses, we see God's grace. And God's graciously addressed them, and He's going to soon graciously dress them with coverings. But in the middle, they hear the pronouncement of judgment on their great deceiver, their great enemy.
1: See, too, before we get into it too much. In those words, cursed are you. They show
0: us that Satan is culpable. He is held to account. Seemingly, he got the first win in the beginning of chapter 3. But he doesn't get away with it. He was the most crafty, but now he's the most cursed. He is cursed above all, it says here above all the other creatures. Now, my Hebrew's not very great. I actually took the only one class of Hebrew that I had to take in my very, very final semester as a summer class, and I scraped by. But apparently, apparently there's these two words. There's a bit of a wordplay in Hebrew. The word cursed is like auror. It's like A-R-U-R if you transliterate it. Auror Cursed. But earlier, the word crafty is arum. The most crafty arum is now the most cursed aurora. The most crafty of all creatures
1: is now the most cursed.
0: The one who thinks he can question and contradict God is dressed down by that God. He's put in his place. The one who said, did God really say, is now the one who is hearing God say something authoritative, divine judgment, this decree. There's no place for twisting it or questioning it. And it's ironic, I think, that the first doctrine to be denied was was God's promise of judgment. God said, you should not eat from this tree and if you do, you'll surely die. Well, Satan is involved in that first denial of that doctrine of God's right judgment Well, it's ironic now that he's the first to get this pronouncement of judgment from the Almighty here in chapter 3. As a result of the fall, all creation is under a curse, but Satan is the most cursed. We're going to see there's three parts to this curse. There's something about crawling on his belly, there's something about eating dust, and there's something about conflict. You see, in these verses it says, the Lord God says, cursed are you, and on your belly you shall go. The first part of this judgment is that he'll be consigned to crawling. It's degrading, isn't it? It's a picture that's disgracing. The one who seemed to maybe strut around in arrogance, questioning God, and craftily deceiving Adam and Eve, well, he's not proudly strutting anymore. He's skulking. He is destined to crawl on his belly. The accuser is now accursed that he will on his belly he shall go and it says and dust you shall eat eating dust is a picture of defeat isn't it it's significant as well it's about eating isn't it because what was what was Satan doing in the beginning of chapter 3 was not all about eating eating was what caused the first rebellion and now part of Satan's curse is about eating dust the curse of eating dust, I think, is particularly striking, though, when you consider where they're at. It's on, they're in the midst of Eden, the place of bounty, the place of provision and blessing, where they could eat from any tree, Adam and Eve, could eat from any tree apart from one, and they had good fruit and bountiful provision. Well, on, in the midst of that place of bountiful provision is this curse. Satan, you're going to eat dust. None of this good stuff. You're going to be cursed. You're going to be banished from my blessing. You're going to be barred from my bounty. You will not get any of it. All of creation would end up being barred from this place of fullness and fertility, but the serpent more than any other. And these verses say the extent of the curse. They're going to be all the days. I should probably, yeah, I probably should. I've got a little sniffle going, I guess.
1: <laughs> the curse. Oh, there we go. Good, thanks for moving
0: me as well. Um, I'll try not to sniffle anymore, sorry. The curse we see here, on the belly you shall go, dust you shall eat, all the days of your life. There's irony here too because The one who thought God would not surely put to death. His days are numbered. He will die. He is destined to die and be thrown down. And we're getting to the crux of it all here. We're going to focus on our fourth C. I think it's the most significant part of the curse. It is the conflict. The conflict. In verse 15, the Lord says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her
1: offspring. Here
0: we see there's gonna be opposition of two offsprings. And before we see and rush to see something too, too specific about one offspring, just bear in mind a moment that this word seed can be used, it's a singular word, but can be used to talk about a collective group of people, the seed. So there is general enmity spoken of here. There is offspring of Eve and offspring of the serpent, and they're going to be against each other. They're going to oppose each other. Let's just think for a moment about these seeds. Who is the seed of the woman? Well, in Genesis, the immediate seed of the woman is Cain and Abel, and then all the rest of humanity, it seems. And in 3.20, she is called the mother of of all living. We see in Genesis that there's a faithful line through Seth and through Noah's offspring and on to Abraham and beyond. We've just read, uh, it was read for us by one of the bells, which is great, the bit in chapter 12 of Genesis, the promises to Abraham. There's a faithful line that comes. Eve's line of offspring is a line of life. It's life It's a line of blessing. Eve's line is the good guys. But what about the serpent? What about the seed of the serpent? Just like there is a line of good, there is a line of evil. They're the bad guys. In contrast to the line of the one who is the mother of all living, there's a line of death. A line of evil. A line of the one who is called the murderer. The seed of the serpent You can't really read it literally. Like He's not the one who physically gives birth to every evil person that ever comes after. It's to be seen figuratively. You can read into Scripture and see everyone who is evil, you can see them as an offspring of Satan. His line is represented time and time again by those that are opposed to God and his people who are opposed to good. We see, we do see, even just in the next few verses, we see the ensuing conflict of these two seeds through Genesis. We see Cain versus Abel. And we see that kind of thing go on again and again and again through salvation history. It makes sense of what we see in the rest of Scripture. And it makes sense of what we see in the rest of history. There is an ages-long struggle, a perpetual conflict, between the forces of good and the forces of evil, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And it's probably the first thing that helps us in our being oriented in the battle. Sometimes this world is baffling, is it not? Sometimes it's confusing. Well, knowing that there's a line of evil and a line of good and there's forces of evil and there's forces of good and they're warring, that helps us make sense of this world, does it not? Humanity now is divided into two. There's the faithful who love God, you will see, and there's the rebellious who love self and who are influenced by the serpent and the evil one. I think one of the unspoken questions that maybe Moses, our writer, would want us to think is like, well, whose seed are you? Whose line are you in?
1: These verses show us that there will
0: always be conflict in human experience. There will always be struggle for domination. There will always be this struggle that goes on through history. But we're going to see, ultimately, it's not a struggle that goes on indefinitely. It will come to an end. We know that there's going
1: to be a serpent-crushing seed. It's promised here.
0: Before we get too far, though, let's just underline that. So we've seen there's a general conflict between seeds, the seed of the woman... Seed of evil, seed of the serpent. But there is one specific conflict. The one seed of the woman and the serpent. It says here, he, not they, he, shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. There is a specific conflict. He and you. He singular shall bruise and shall crush your head. There is a conflict pr- promised and pr- prophesied here that ultimately
1: we will see is to do with Christ and Satan.
0: It's referring, it's a prophetic reference, it's a foreshadowing, a figuring of this serpent crushing seed. It's our Saviour, it's Jesus. And don't we see that in the Gospels? Don't we see him waging war against evil and the evil one? Don't we see his temptations in the desert in the beginnings of the Gospels? Do we not see his interactions with the evil forces, the unclean spirits? But in his interaction, Mark 1.27 says, Jesus, he's the one who commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. One word out of Jesus' mouth and the demons obey. Satan and his evil forces, they're no match for Jesus. We see that in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we see time and time again how Jesus succeeds against Satan. And we're going to see, we'll see it more in a little bit on our last point, which is the conqueror. But before we do, we're going to see, just focus a little bit for a moment here. In the conflict, it's, the fact that Jesus is the true and better Adam, that's how he that's how can win, actually. We sang those words, see the true and better Adam, come to save the hellbound man. Jesus is the true and better Adam, the last Adam. Where
1: the first Adam failed, our last Adam does not. Our heavenly Adam succeeds, Jesus.
0: Where first Adam failed in the garden, Jesus, our second Adam, our heavenly Adam, in a different garden, he doesn't fail, he succeeds. He prays for us and he fights for us and he sets his face to go and die for us, to bear the judgment that was ours. And there he conquered we're going to get more onto his conquering this conquering king in just a moment. But before we do, there is an ensuing conflict that, that we experience, do we not, with Satan? Ephesians 6, we read earlier, our struggle is not against spiritual forces, it's not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual forces of evil, Paul says in Ephesians. Let's just think briefly, what, what is our struggle like? What can Satan do to us now in this battle? There's a few things, but I think there's just two I'm going to highlight. He can afflict us. He can deal his blows. He can fire his darts. We can experience his crafty schemes. We feel it in the ways we suffer. We feel it in the ways we struggle with sin. I know there's times in my life when I've had some big battles with besetting sin destructive sin, dark sin. There's times in my life when it seemed like Satan had the upper hand. It seemed like he was having a field day in my life when I felt defeated. Well, I had a faithful pastor who turned to me in those days and was like, you know what? All this you're facing is no match for the power and grace of Jesus. In this life, we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer in the struggle against sin, we're going to suffer the trials of all kinds, Jesus says. Paul says, I guess. And I mentioned it at the beginning, but like I've been feeling it just the last few weeks. I went home from my best, one of my best friend's son's funeral. He was 17. He died tragically when he shouldn't have done it. It's wrong. Death's always wrong, but a 17-year-old on a skateboard? What's that about? And at the funeral, we sang at the end, a cappella, it is well with my soul. And there's a verse. I'm never going to forget the singing at that funeral. It was something else. There's like 500 people there and it was thundering. And it was full of grief, but it was full of hope. But we sang these words, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul and for a healthy soul and for the souls of all who would trust him. We sang it as well with my soul because there's one who wins. Jesus wins the day. And I, I, we've been chatting a little bit this week about, I had a chat with a couple of people about what does it mean that Satan buffets? Well, I, didn't, I don't think it's anything to do with golden corral corral whatever he's not he's not getting his plate full of steak i think is that he can blow us like being buffeted you can be buffeted by waves in a boat you can be blown off course you can be battered that's what he's like he can afflict he can batter i think another thing he can do is he can accuse he can't ultimately harm us he can't ultimately if we're in christ cause us even to die but he can, if we're, in, if we're in Christ, yeah, death is defeated. He can't haunt us, haunt us with hovering over our heads like, oh, maybe you're going to die, or maybe I could do this to you. But he can accuse us. He can say, you're sinful. You're more sinful. You're too sinful. You're more sinful than God's going God's to forgive you. He can accuse. He's. He is an accuser, but he is actually. We can say to him, "Satan, you're a miserable liar, because I'm worse than any any accusation you can throw at me. I'm worse." And you know what? My Savior died for the worst of sinners like me. So I don't know. Do you feel helpless in the battle against sin, against Satan? Do you feel weary in our battle? Consider him who has fought ahead of us, consider him who's gone ahead of us, consider him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is now sat at the right hand of God, consider him in your struggle consider Christ, look to him because he can't the accuser can accuse but we're safe in Christ, we're safe in Christ and lastly we're on to our fifth seed now, the conquering king we've seen the promise of the seed, we've seen that there's going to be a head crushing conqueror It's Jesus. Jesus shall bruise or crush or strike the serpent's head. And the serpent and Satan shall bruise his heel. Now, no one ever died of a bruised heel, right? I don't think anyone really died of a bruised heel. It's a wound, but it's not a bad wound. But a blow to the head, that can kill instantly. Jesus will deal Satan a final and fatal blow. Jesus does win. But how does he win? It's not like the way you'd expect, right? We think about this time of year, the incarnation. He came
1: as a helpless, tiny baby.
0: He came seemingly a little helpless one. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. We could have held him in our hands. Now, I don't know whether you use this word, but sometimes when you see a baby, you can call them maybe a little bruiser. Do you use that word? Like they're, when they're kind of like built strong and tough and a big. Like Noah Morse, he's kind of a little bruiser. He's a big kid. Well, here there is a true little bruiser, Jesus. He was born to finally bruise and crush Satan. The one who comes as a meek baby
1: is the one who shows his might. Not not in the way you'd expect.
0: He comes as a baby. And he lives in some kind of obscurity for a while while he grows up and then he begins his ministry and he lives as a man and he goes to a cross and he dies for the sins of the people. He was struck down. He was smitten at the cross, it says, in Isaiah 53. He was wounded. And by his wounds, we're healed. By by his, the way he wins is actually himself by being wounded and taking the wounds. The song that we've been learning the last few weeks, His Be the Victor's Name, it says Jesus trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. Isn't that really true power, to win even by the weakest way? By weakness and defeat, he won the glorious crown. How does he conquer? He conquers by his death. He conquers by his death. The lamb hangs in victory, we sung. He hangs on a cross in victory. Colossians 2.14 says, what he's done at the cross, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us by dying canceled the legal demands, he has set it aside, nailed it to the cross, and he has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. He has triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over death. We know it because he died for our sins and he rose in glorious victory. The grave and death he conquered It seemed here that Satan maybe had the first win. He deceived. He doesn't have the last laugh, though, does he? The last word and the last triumph belongs to Jesus. He conquers. And one more thing. We shall conquer with him. Do you know that? We shall conquer with him. Paul says... In Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He says to the Roman Christians, all those in Christ have a job in the crushing. As co-regents, as co-heirs, we have a job in the crushing of Satan. We're coming down to land here, but just so what? What are we to make of this? What what difference is it to make? We think about this battle, think about the rules of war, the rules of engagement with our our enemy. Well, we know the conqueror, right? But how are we going to fight day to day, tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? How are you going to fight? I've got a few really, really quick points and then we'll be done of how we might fight, of how we might come up with a battle plan. Number one, resist the devil that's what 1 Peter 5 8 says resist him the one who prowls around like a roaring lion resist him James 4 7 resist
1: him and he will flee from you
0: and number 2 Paul says put on the armor of God there is there is a battle but there is armor finally be strong in the Lord and in his strength of his might put on the whole armor of God Paul says and take your stand. The belt of truth, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. Put on the, put on the armor. And number three, keep gathering with the army. And by that I mean come to church. We need each other. We need to encourage each other
1: in the battle. Number four,
0: pray. Pray as Jesus taught us to Pray. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation.
1: And how does the prayer end? Because yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power. And the
0: next one, number five, know the word. There's the necessity of God's word, the Bible, the sword of the spirit. I couldn't... Quote Winston Churchill without quoting another great Brit, and this is there's going to be two quotes from Spurgeon that just say what I would want to say just way better than I could. He says this about kind of fighting with the Word of God, and it's going to come up on the screen. If I begins if thou would successfully wrestle with, if thou wouldst successfully wrestle with Satan, make the Holy Scriptures thy daily resort. Out of this sacred magazine continually draw thine armor and thine ammunition. Lay hold upon the glorious doctrines of God's word. Make them thy daily meat and drink. So shalt thou be strong to resist the devil, and thou shalt be joyful in discovering he will flee from thee. Let us fight Satan always with a, It is written, for no weapon will ever tell upon the arch enemy so well as the holy scriptures will. Attempt to fight Satan with the wooden sword of reason, and he will easily overcome you. But use this Jerusalem blade of God's word by which he has been wounded many a time, and you will speedily overcome him, Spurgeon says. In the fight, make use of that means of grace, the word. And again, another one from Spurgeon, this one's stay close to the savior. This is what he says in another quote. This begins, but above all. I think it's in that good, yeah. Stay close to the Savior, this is his point. But above all, if we would successfully resist Satan, we must look not merely to revealed wisdom in the word, but to incarnate wisdom. Oh beloved, here must be the chief place of resort for every tempted soul. We must flee to him, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He must teach us, he must guide us, he must be our all in all. We must keep close to him in communion. The sheep are never so safe from the wolf as when they are near the shepherd. We shall never be so secure from the hours of Satan as when we have our heads lying on the Savior's bosom. Believe a walk according to his example. Live daily in his fellowship. Trust thou always in his blood. And in his way thou shalt be more than a conqueror, even over the subtlety and craft of Satan himself. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to the victorious one. And remember, he stays close to us too. He says, Surely I'm with you till the end of the age. By his spirit, he is with us. And lastly, the last one in our battle plan, remember who wins. There is an end to the battle. Peace time is coming. If we're on the Lord's side, we're on the side of the overcomer, the one who wins. We can be those who overcome the world. We can be more than conquerors if we're in Christ. This conflict will not go on forever. We will see at the end of the scriptures, it will come to an end. And on that day, we can laugh at Satan, at his derision, because he's going to be thrown down. We're in a battle, but take heart. Take heart. Rise up. And fight in this battle. Get ready. Get real about the battle. Remember our enemy, but be reassured about our Saviour in the battle. And I'm going to finish with this. And I'm sorry I've taken a little bit of extra time, but um, Jordan finished with a, reading a children's book last week, so I thought it was only appropriate that I finished by reading a hymn. I'm not going to sing it solo for you, but this is a favourite hymn of mine that we sing in England a lot. It's called "We Rest on Thee, Our Shield." and our defender. If we think about the battle, listen to these words. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength and safe in thy keeping tender, we rest on thee, in thy name we go. Yes, in thy name, O captain of salvation, in thy dear name, all other names above. Jesus, you are our righteousness and our sure foundation, our prince of glory, and our king of love. And we go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day, thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts, a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. We rest on thee, our shield, and our defender. Thine is the battle, and thine shall be the praise. When passing through those gates of pearly splendor, We will rest as victors through endless days. Let me pray for us as we finish.